Welcome to the Beyond 3D podcast, where we explore all things 3D and the important role that 3D data plays throughout the manufacturing process, driving decisions throughout a product's life cycle. Here, we talk with industry analysts, business owners, developers, and industry influencers, and hear real stories that you can relate to and learn from, and know which trends and technologies apply to your business. So join us as we go Beyond 3D. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Beyond 3D. My name is Angela Simoes, and we are here with Melanie Stone, Senior Solutions Architect with ROI Consulting Group. Welcome, Melanie. Thanks for having me, Angela. I'm really excited to be here. Excellent. And my co-host today, as in the past, is Jonathan Giroir, a technology evangelist with TechSoft 3D. Welcome, Jonathan. Hey, thanks, Angela. And, and Melanie, thanks so much for being with us today, too. So, Melanie, before we jump into the topic of our conversations today, can you just give our listeners a bit about your background and how you arrived at what you're doing today? Yeah, like a lot of people who end up doing what I do, I didn't intend to end up here because I didn't know this career field existed. I I was originally studying mechanical engineering and ended up falling into an internship on the engineering staff of one of our nation's top 10 hospitals. I didn't know anything about facilities engineering, but I loved it. So my three-month internship lasted 13 and a half years. Wow. The, the bulk of my experience on the owner's side was learned and performed and improved in that hospital setting. And I got to meet a lot of great people from the industry and got involved in education because I know a lot of them felt isolated, that they Mm -hmm. had no one else to learn from. So I tried to make it a point that we could all learn from each other. And since I left there, I worked directly for one other facility, but for the past 10 years now, I have Mm -hmm. been purely on the consulting side. So I've gotten to work with way more facilities all well I was gonna say coast to coast but actually I've had quite a few clients globally in recent years so pretty much everywhere interesting excellent and and just for the sake of our listeners you and I go way back to Autodesk days so I was uh, internal at the uh, the PR team and you were you had ran an AutoCAD blog and back then you know we talked BIM was the big thing that everybody talked about and everybody was if they weren't doing it, they were talking about doing it and how do you do it and all those kinds of things, right? Now it seems that digital twins has been the thing that we're talking about for a long time. So simple question, do you work with digital twins for your clients? We do have a small number of clients who are doing digital twin, but I think the way that it's actually being applied is a lot different than the way that it's being marketed. Yes. And I, in our pre-conversation, it's, uh, and even if, if you read some articles that are out there, I think there's still a lot of questions about how, how do you, you know, actually go about creating a digital twin and then using it. Right. So yeah. um, go ahead, Jonathan. On, the, on the marketing side is what one of the things I do, we talk about rich data, being able to make informed decisions, long-term archival, being able to augment and data kind of as it comes comes in on top of 3D design. So those are all the things that we're talking about and excited about, but it sounds like in practice, that's not always really the case. Well, 
I mean, the things that you're mentioning are the things I've always been excited about as a facilities person. Because we've been doing that even when we had paper, even when we were doing CAD and spreadsheets to now that we're using models. But we're not the ones designing the buildings. There are design teams that are built and put together using different criteria than mine. I would definitely choose design teams very differently than finance would. (laughs) Um, So in practicality, when I've been told, oh, your building is going to all be in BIM, and I'm like, so everyone on the project team is using Revit? And they're like, oh, yes, 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 yes. I'm like, well, I know that's not true. Because at that time, I knew all of the firms in town who were competent with Revit MEP. And I knew the structural firms that were competent with BIM. And I knew that not all of those people were using Autodesk products. But when I, as the owner, receive a deliverable, I have to have one file format. And fortunately or unfortunately, that file format has to be Autodesk because our IWMS systems. Those plugins that pull in all the data for first day of business, square footage, room usage, equipment, all of that information we need to know, boots on the ground, the first day those doors open and the building is occupied, that's only done through Autodesk plugins. It doesn't matter what vendor you're going through, plan on, MRI Centerstone, Archibus, FM systems, like every single one of those vendors only has plugins for Autodesk. Mm. So if our design teams are using 12 different products, you can't just toss us an IFC file over the fence and expect it to work. And that was going to be my next question is like yeah. IFC was supposed to be this, this savior for, for these issues. And, and you're telling us that maybe it's not as practical as in, in your experience that as as it's been talked about. Yeah, I'm a big data person and I can consume information that way, but the vast majority of people in a facility are they're being translated through something else. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And mostly that's going to be your large scale IWMS vendors and You have to have a consistent file format in order to get through there. And unfortunately, when you're switching models and converting them from one software vendor to another, it's it's not always going to be smooth. There's going to be a lot of afterwork to get that clean enough to be ingested into the database with one button, which when that works, it's a thing Mm. of beauty. It happens (laughs) immediately. And I love it. It never works like that on first day of business. So let's let's go down both paths. One, when it works, and you know, so you have this final digital twin as a facilities management person. How are you using it? And is it being used the way that all the articles talk about and all the marketing pieces talk about, right? And then after that, I'd love to go down the here's how, yes, that's when it works, but then here's how most of the time it goes. Right. Because I feel like, and and maybe this is the frustration of a lot of practitioners out there who are reading about digital twins who are saying, that looks great as an article. And that little fancy image you worked up looks beautiful. Like it looks like a a minority report. Right. But 
that just doesn't happen. Right. And I'm not the only one saying that. So I would love to go down each path and, and then maybe we could talk about, all right, how do we get the, this doesn't happen to eventually, you know, maybe there's some advice or tips or anything like that we could talk about, but let's go down that first path of when it does work. What does that look like? So let's say I have written my RFP. My BIM standards are in there right along with the material standards and specifications. And the contractors read them and abide by them and give me what I pay for at the end of the project. So let's say I get this model. Let's, it's probably going to be a linked model. So I've got architectural, structural, MEP all coming in. Mm-hmm. And I put it up on my server and I connect it to my database. And I say, this is the name of the building ingest my floors, ingest my equipment, and all of that information would populate into my IWMS where my maintenance managers can go in and they can put in their maintenance checklists. They're not ever going to do that in a model. I'm sorry. They're going to do that in an IWMS that has ingested a model. And they're going to have their maintenance checklist. It's going to go out to their people. So they're going to perform their preventative maintenance. Other people are going to log into that same system and they're going to look up a space or equipment and they're going to put in a work request that's going to be linked to that space. And that space is going to build up maintenance information over time and change information over time. Of course, most of those changes are going to come in the same way they've always come in. A maintenance staff is going to go out to repair something or to double check something ahead of a repair, and they're going to either change something or see that something that was changed, and they're going to scratch it down on a napkin, and they're going to throw it to the in-house subject matter expert. Now, you may have the same person doing AutoCAD updates and BIM updates, or you may have different people, but they're all going to hand that off to one person who is managing the model. And that's how updates will be made. And then when the next renovation rolls around, that model can then be handed off to the new design team who's going to have a a very good up-to-date working understanding of that space. They're not going to have to go out and spend a lot of time doing surveys. They're not going to have to get little isolation tents so that they can safely pop open ceiling tiles without getting people sick. They're already going to have it. And they're going to know that it's trustworthy because the FM trusts it. And yeah. I, that's pretty much the life cycle if it works well. Yeah. And I think it's important for us to define, we, if we live in a world of acronyms, what an IWMS is for some of our listeners, because we're talking to mechanical engineers and, and people who are in shipbuilding or in analysis. So that's, it really is this product lifecycle management system for the asset. Uh, it's, it's specifically an integrated workplace management system but it's it's a way to manage that data kind of long term as it's been now delivered to the client is that right melanie do i have that understanding yes. correct yes you have that 100% correct yeah and so that's that's now it becomes the, the the state of truth for the asset for its for its foreseeable management by that particular owner and that includes the 3d data but then also all of the management um, and maintenance data as well for for that asset. Is that right? Yes. So any changes that are made and updated to the data in the system can be bi-directionally updated to the model. And 
it's all going to be managed in that database and not directly within the model itself. You know, that's the single source of truth. Great. Yeah. And that's what we're, we're always, it's always important to have that single source, isn't it? Making sure that if you don't have good data, we can't make good decisions. 100% true. And is that, so you said the changes will be made in the database, not in the model, but then I guess if you wanted to view an updated model, it would be pulling information from that database so that you could see whether it was a... In the situation where the mechanic would come to me and say, okay, this pipe, they added an isolation valve here, or they had to route this pipe around here that it wasn't reflected in the original design. So that would be the point at which I, the subject manage, subject matter expert, would go in and update the physical components of the model. Mm-hmm. And then that new valve would be linked to the valve that's, you know, a piece okay. of data in the system. Okay. And then is this a model or the database that can evolve over time as technology improves as well? For example, you know, as the software improves or as the AI, just because AI, everybody's talking about it right now. If somebody wants to apply some AI in some way to the model, is that, is it in a form that can be evolved or how would that work? Yeah, well, we've got data living in two different formats. So one would be our Revit model. And one would be our database backend, which would be SQL or Oracle, occasionally DB2, but mostly SQL. So we'll just make that assumption from here on out. So databases can live on as long as they need to, very portable. They can talk to anybody and everybody. So the IWMS platform itself And it's also in the past been called CAFM, Computer-Aided Facility Management. Everybody has a different acronym for it. But in our IWMS, those upgrade cycles can be different. So if you're hosting on-prem, you might only upgrade your software every 15 years. If you are using a SaaS version, which are getting better these days, then you might upgrade once a year or even quarterly. So that in the past, prior to SaaS being as realistic as it is today, because they're very easy to use and support because database uptime and internet connectivity is so much more robust than it used to be. The SaaS model definitely helps that upgrade cycle. Previously, a facility manager, if you want to upgrade your CAFM software, it's like a million-dollar project that takes two years So you're going to put it off as long as possible. So you're going to make your vendors use an older version of Revit (laughs) because the Revit plugin for that on-prem software is 15 years old. That that is the software that facilities live and die by. They really don't care about design software as much as they care about their IWMS because it's a lot more expensive. Yeah, so you're you're saying that the... the cloud revolution as it's coming to AEC and, and construction is is really welcome because it, it is it minimizes that pain. Welcome. Yeah. Yeah, we're seeing that, you know, it, it seems like the world around us has, has been on the cloud for it for a decade plus, but 
Um, it takes a long time to move these other organizations and ad adopt those those new technologies, and that's okay. But it's here now, and we're so thankful for that. Yeah, it's it's a big relief. But I'd say the facilities upgrade cycle was similar to the upgrade cycle of any other enterprise software I've used or supported, whether that be you know operating systems or accounting software or just anything being done on a big scale in a facility is it's not going to be speedy or cheap until now. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So we have a, a picture of, of best case scenario in today's world. Now, how does it work for most other facilities and other companies? <laughs> we don't get the as-builts we pay for, period. I mean, that's the simplest way of stating it. And even when we do get them, the contractors working together mm -hmm. is a very rare thing. So normally the architect will send out a set of drawings at an early stage of the project that everybody else will work off of. And then that will continue to change. And they're all using different platforms. And then at the end, each of those contractors sends whatever it is they've got at that point to the owner, if the owner's lucky. As I've said, actually getting those files is a challenge. Some people get territorial and refuse to comply with the contract, even if they've already been quoted the price and even if they've already been paid for it. So some owners will withhold money, you know, like the last 10 or 20% of a project and some consulting firms just write that off as lost money because they're never going to oh go God. back and make design documents. Or the finance team for the owner closes out the books without all the deliverables being received, which is a procedural problem on our part, clearly. But we don't always have the control we would like. The, we're all shiny, happy people at the beginning of the project when we sign on the dotted line. But if they're not working on the same software platforms and they're not staying coordinated across the phases and they're not prioritizing documenting the changes that come in from the field, it's it never gets back to the owner. And that's not just a thing with small clients in mm -hmm. backwards areas. This is a global issue. The last time I did CAD standards checking was for a certain technology giant who was global and I was in charge of the CAD files for their APAC region, but was asked to review their CAD files globally, and they couldn't get deliverables. In order to be an equitable employer globally, they also couldn't, in good conscience, require only Autodesk software be used because it just wasn't affordable or a realistic thing for design teams across the globe. So... There's ideal situations that happen every now and again, but for the vast majority of time, we're not getting a neat little package wrapped up with a bow at the end of a project. We are getting dribs and drabs of information of people who spoke once two years ago and have been operating in their own design and construction silos since that point. It just sounds insane to me. I mean, and you it sounds like you live it. It's frequently, yeah. right? Which can be, it's, I imagine, is very frustrating. And and to your point, you know, you can't force everybody to use the same software. However, there are translate like data translators, viewers, right, that can allow people to at least 
be seeing and working off the same information, correct? I mean, at a very basic level, and that just addresses the one problem. So, I mean, how there sounds like there's a lot of pieces wrong with this collaboration here, if we could even call it a collaboration at this point. Where, where, where should a, um, I guess, uh, own, building owners start? Does it start with the building owner and they have to dictate their terms and I don't know, not, I, I don't know. Where would you start? <laughs> what, would you, I, what would you suggest? I would start with the, the windmill I've been tilting against for the past 20 plus years, which is starting with the engineering teams. Mm. I tell every engineering person I speak to, talk to the owner. Don't talk to the project manager, talk to the actual owner. Because project managers have much higher turnover than facility managers do. We tend to stay put. We know our trades. Project managers tend to move across disciplines, industries. So if you're an architect or you're an engineer and you want to know what's actually going to happen to your data, you want to actually know that it's going to be used and how, you have to talk to someone in operations not your administrative contact or your financial contact. Because there are times when the same level of detail is not required. For example, I had a massive renovation project on my campus. Everybody failed the CAD standards check. I'm like, no, we're not going to pay you for documentation because it doesn't comply with our standards. Well, one team came to me and you know, with questions, with my standards that they bothered to look up and started asking questions like layering standards. I'm like, yes, this is important because we take your MEP information or your architectural information and we put it in a patchwork quilt. We are keeping up to date. We're not working on this one renovation. We're working on this entire campus and it has to match. And they said, okay, well, what about all the sections and details and schedules? I'm like, we don't care about that. Don't bother standardizing that because it's not something that's important to us. Mm. So they put together a LISP routine, ran it across the entire directory of hundreds of files and turned it over in two days. Whereas the teams wow. that did, they did not ask questions were going through doing things manually don't do things manually. Get yourself a CAD manager who can program. I'm just saying, <laughs> don't ever do it manually on a facility. It's way too big to do everything manually. So they didn't try and automate it. They didn't ask clarifying questions. Like one standard was that we had to have one plotted sheet per electronic file for reasons of registering in a database. And they were going in and manually chopping up the model space too. I'm like, nowhere did we say chop up the model space. Ask clarifying questions. Don't make assumptions. And facility owners love when people ask them questions because they know they're actually having their standards read and listened to and validated instead of someone saying, oh, I'm a designer. I know more than those dumb owners. Give them what I say they need rather than what they actually need. So. It doesn't start with the owner. It starts with the folks on the design side acknowledging that their project is going to live on after them. So don't send PLT files or 3D GIFs or something. It's mm -hmm. not going to work. So 
if that is not an existing, I guess, a line of reporting or communication, if you will, I mean, we're, we've all worked in teams and corporate cultures, and we know that if you you go direct and around someone, someone's feelings are going to get hurt. So what would you recommend in this kind of a situation, just from the very beginning, have the engineering team say, we want a direct line with the owner for the entire project kind of thing versus, okay, we're a year and a half in and we need, now we need to talk to the, you know, to the owner or, you know what I mean? So how would you suggest that get set up so that nobody, you know, gets their feathers ruffled? Well, that's, it's impossible to avoid ruffling some feathers, <laughs> but in any people that sensitive uh, don't belong in facilities anyway. So in, in that case, I think we would want to build upon existing lines because in any instance as an existing facility, when we have renovations and new builds, they're involving the occupants, right? So the people who are going to be operating within the space, you know, doctors and nurses, they can say, no, the outlets can't be here because the equipment has to be here for safety reasons. You know, those types of things are already being worked on. And then before the walls go up, the maintenance staff has a chance to walk through and go, okay, well, this isn't the material we specified in our standards and specifications. Here's your chance to swap it out most cheaply and correct the issue. So there are already points at which many people from the owner side, yeah, they're already looped in. So pack it onto that process. Yeah. I liked as a technologist, I liked what you said just a few minutes ago, get yourself a CAD manager that can program and that, that can, that can really kind of ease the pain, right. And in, in terms mm-hmm. of solving some of these problems early on and, and in terms of being able to expedite as well. But, you know, I, I am curious that we are talking about behavioral change and that's, that's always important, but working for a technology company, Techsoft 3D, we supply technology to these vendors like, like Autodesk and, and uh, other BIM and AEC companies. If you had a wish list to kind of like move this industry forward, what would be on that wish list in terms of, of tools or technology that is going to ease, ease the pain or, or improve communication in these organizations? Because we'd, we'd love to hear that because that's what, that's what we're trying to do is, is move the needle. And we're also trying to assist the, the companies we're supplying technology to trying to inform them. That's, that's why they're here listening is like, what can they be doing? What tools can they be building that really as, assists the industry as a whole? And somebody and, and trying to fix some of these problems that exist. I think it, so many of your technology tools would already provide the framework. It's just getting people to use them. A lot of folks can be very territorial. They don't want their work looked at or examined. They just want to be trusted as the expert. And there's a lot of that sort of cowboy, lone wolf type of attitude in our industry, um, which is why so many people start their own design firms instead of working for larger ones. They, they, they want to be their own boss. They don't want to be in a mile-long chain of command. So I think the, the current technologies, anything with collaboration and letting that stuff happen in real time instead of six months down the line when it 
is, you know, we, we all know about that that chart with the curve that drops off at every time you change exchange data between different people. So as long as you have those online collaborative tools, which we talked about, that infrastructure is so much more realistic these days. Anybody can take their iPad and do, you know, conflict checks, uh, you know, some type of online hosting. As long as everybody in the design team is utilizing those collaboration tools, we're already there, technologically speaking, from my opinion. Mm-hmm. We're just lacking at the fact that people don't use them. Well, that's that's fantastic to know that we have the tools available. So mm-hmm. it really is behavioral, and it really is mm-hmm. trying trying to improve that communication across the organization and 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 outside the organization as well. Yeah, I feel like we could have almost an educational series of phases of a project and how you you know better collaborate. Uh, you know, and the tools to use, right? So maybe that's something we explore offline, but it it truly does seem like there's still a lot of educating and, as you mentioned, uh, Jonathan, behavioral change that needs to happen. And it's interesting to me, you mentioned, Melanie, that, you know, people don't like to have their stuff looked at, or, you know, that's why we have a lot of people going off on their own. And it's, you know, for me, I think in any profession, it's like, well, if you want to be, if you want to have a reputation as somebody that is trusted and does good work and is easy to work with, why would you not want to be forthcoming with your designs and share information and make the process easy? I mean, why? I I, I don't understand that that mentality at all. But hey, you know that's me. <laughs> it gets it exists. It exists. But we are coming up on our time, unfortunately. But is there anything else we didn't address here? today that you think is really important. But like I said, maybe we're going to have a series of things, <laughs> of topics to talk about in future podcasts or, or webinars. Who knows? I think the, the thing for me as an owner that actually is exciting, you know, I've always loved technology and I will never stop fighting for better collaboration uh, from operations to everybody else. But the consumer level the consumer friendliness of devices that can make our lives easier mm-hmm. is so exciting. Like uh, laser scanning, mm-hmm. you know, um, and like for me, ground penetrating radar is where it's at because I care about the things that I can't see. I don't care about drywall and drop ceilings because those are visible to the eye. Anything that can capture data accurately, so I'm not out there with a, a tape measure or a disto. Mm-hmm. Those things have come down so much in price and training requirements. It's just astounding. Also, sensors. Right now, our biggest concern on the facility side is how we're using the facility, optimizing Mm -hmm. that, um, switching it around, seeing if we need fewer workspaces and more collaboration spaces. And in order to make determinations of how people are actually using the spaces we have sensors that are super easy like we've got some our most popular ones that we're resellers for are they look like about the size of a scrabble tile you hmm. you pl- you plug in a receiver and then you put these sensors anywhere you just like stick them up and you occupancy moisture 
wow. temperature, like anything. And it's super cheap and easy compared to when I started in the industry, the building automation systems. If you want to run a new data point sensor in one of those old systems, it's like $10,000 mm. for one hook in. And that's not even like the master control software, which was millions. So the ability for any facility manager to just walk in, grab one of these kits and put it out there and be able to see a real-time dashboard without knowing how to use Power BI and things like that. It's the consumerization, just making it so friendly that it's not a burden for us to learn yet another technology. So that's the type of thing that I can actually get excited about because I see it having such an impact in facilities day to day. Yeah. And then tying it to what we're talking about today, the digital twin too, right? So helping us make better engineering decisions on top of that, in either current or future. Exactly. And I mentioned we do have clients currently doing digital twin. They're primarily doing digital twin because they want to be able to see their sensor data in a richer mm -hmm. format. They're not necessarily using it for the traditional building operations, but seeing airflow and indoor air quality and how many people are in the space for how long and being able to visualize that in a model is, uh, you know, it's, it's something that makes the data translation easier for mm -hmm. them. Yeah. Very cool. Well, and, and like you said, well, you mentioned, you know, the consumeration. So these things have become much more easy to use, much more affordable. And so perhaps those listening to this podcast who still are at the very beginning and are still saying, yeah, but the whole digital twin thing is really difficult and, and it's really expensive and getting everybody on the same page, but maybe a first step towards not a digital twin necessarily, but maybe build digital transformation to throw in another buzzword there is using some of these, like you said, little sensor kits or other technologies that are out there or just getting set up in the cloud. So I think there are steps that people can take to get started, right? And it doesn't seem so scary. Some, and something we can get past finance. <laughs> That's another important part, right? Um, well, this has been a great conversation, and I hope that we had a lot of listeners nodding their heads saying, yes, that's exactly the problem and things like that, so that they know that we are having these conversations because it's not always beautiful digital twins and everybody's perfect and, and having the best experience out there. And that's why we're here is to help um, help them navigate that. So. Thank you for your time, Melanie. It was really great chatting with you. And I, I have a feeling it's not going to be the last time. Um, so we look forward to having you back on the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan, as always. And thank Absolutely. you to our listeners out there who joined us for another episode of Beyond 3D. If you found this episode interesting and helpful in any way, and you want to share it with colleagues, um, your boss, finance, if you will, uh, please share it and subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. And that way more people in your field of work will be able to, to find it and join the conversation. And with that, we'll say until next time, thank you so much and have a wonderful day. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Beyond 3D podcast, hosted by TechSoft3D. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review, or subscribe on SoundCloud. To listen to past episodes or learn more about TechSoft3D, visit www.techsoft3d.com forward slash blog. 
Send us comments and suggestions at info at techsoft3d.com. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next episode of Beyond 3D. Thank you.